Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Tom Solo, attended the Museum of Fine Arts School, Boston, where he developed a love for creating sculptures using various mediums and gravitated towards wearable art. In 2008, Tom launched his shoe label, and by 2014, he had achieved mainstream success, creating custom shoes for style icons and music influencers, including Lady Gaga, Demi Lovato, Kelly Clarkson, Lana Del Rey, and Britney Spears. So many things there. I have so many. They're so different, too. Anywho, um, in the diabetes space at eight, nine, Tom founded the Children's Congress and shares, it is important for me to share my T1D story because I know it can be a lonely and even an isolating experience at times. The confusion and misperceptions about type 1 diabetes in the media and popular culture remains a challenge, and I want to help change that. So welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. Tom, let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis story. Yeah, so um, at the age of two, I actually have specific memories that I like later in life double-checked with my mom and she was like, yeah, this happened. I I was dancing around the living room, hyper, hyper energy. Mm. And then all of a sudden just hit the floor and I was uh, having severe high blood sugars. And unfortunately, my mom didn't see the signs quickly enough until mm-hmm. we got to the hospital. And as we were getting to the hospital, I ended up slipping into a coma oh. for 48 hours. So yeah, it was a little bit of a rocky start. I mean, it's not great for any of us the way we kind of <laughs> think of right. a diabetic journey, but that's that's kind of how it went down. Do you have a family history of type 1 diabetes? Yes, my grandfather had it. And unfortunately, you know, back in the day, there was not enough technology. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember exactly the age that he passed, but I want to say he was in his 40s or 50s so okay. yeah he didn't he didn't live a very long life but thank god we have all the technology we do now <laughs> well and that's one of the things i like to touch on too because i was diagnosed at age eight and and that was 40 years ago <laughs> and what i had available at that time was great and it was just about the time that glucometers were in the homes and so mm-hmm. being diagnosed at age two and bless your parents hearts and all the t1d parents out there that have a child that young what did you start with and what are you using currently? So I started with a glucometer and insulin shots. I, for a while, was like on strict Humalog. And then it was the Lantus game for a little oh, bit. Yeah. I was, oh my God, do not miss that era at all. Yeah. <laughs> Still, every once in a while, we'll do like a, a finger stick just to kind of like regulate where I'm at. But I am on the tandem insulin pump and the Dexcom CGM. Okay. Um, I'm such big fans of theirs. I was on Medtronic for a while and just didn't feel like it was a great fit. But yeah. I switched to an insulin pump around the age of 14. Okay. 
Well, and it's one of those things, again, the advancements of technology. Now we have a few options and that will continue to grow. So diabetes management, whatever type of diabetes you have, will continue to hopefully get better. I really want to jump into especially your art career because I had an art gallery for 10 years. And when I went to college, I got vocational rehabilitation, which is basically funding because I have type 1 diabetes. But I was limited as to what I could study. And with that being said, if I lost my eyesight or all these things, and art was not on the table, which I find so funny because as soon as I graduated from college, I started doing art and had a gallery for 10 years. So with that being said, it's not a traditional career. I used to talk to parents all the time about your child can make a living. There are many outlets in which. So let's talk about getting into art and what did you, you know, what did your family think about it? Because my parents thought I was crazy. <laughs> well, my mom's always been such a cheerleader of mine. She's always been super supportive. The conversation of art has kind of like always been in my life. I knew that I wanted to ultimately down the road segue into fashion, but I was like very heavily influenced by photography. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to go to art school to study photography, get a fine art education, as well as being able to move into the space of like commercialism and fashion and whatnot. But as I was able to at SMFA uh, back in the day, they really didn't make you declare a major. So you're mm -hmm. kind of able to like dabble in everything. I ended up finding sculpture and very quickly was like, oof, like, I think I kind of love this idea of being able to like directly get my hands on something mm -hmm. and create it as opposed to having to conduct 17,000 things just to create an image. Yeah. So sculpture very quickly uh, with the love and influence of fashion and pop culture and music started to segue into footwear. And, you know, they didn't have a four-year program at SMFA slash Tufts, but there was artisans in my town who had been doing this forever. Yeah. You know, they're all Armenian and the craftsmen and yeah. able to really kind of uh, study the two at the same time. And that's kind of where shoes and art kind of collided. Well, we're going to talk more about shoes here in a second. But in those years, and when you started to move into the fashion world, were there any particular... I'm going to say artist or anybody out there that was really influenced how you got started. Yep. Alexander McQueen. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, funny story. When I was 19, while obviously in school, I was working at the Mark Jacobs store in Provincetown during the summers. And it was corporate week and Robert Duffy and Mark Jacobs and the whole corporate team were in town. And this gentleman walked into the store and I was like, why do you seem so familiar? <laughs> and I just didn't put two and two together. And Robert Duffy, the CEO of the time, was like, could you help Lee with the, you know, stinky rat polos in the corner mm -hmm. and like still not clicking Lee, Lee, Lee. Then, you know, helping him, he hands me his black card and it says Lee Alexander McQueen. And I just, my mouth just dropped. <laughs> But back to his work, specifically uh, in Time Magazine, there was during the Plato's Atlantis collection, which was really his crescendo before his unfortunate passing, is when it really collided for me. There was a black and white image of his armadillo boot, which, you know, mm -hmm. got made so famous. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was emotional, it was functional, it was sculptural, and it kind of just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was kind of like, 
I'm feeling a major calling and I feel like this is now kind of where I need to move in terms of a direction. Well, and I have to say, because I've been stalking you for quite some time, but also enjoying your website <laughs> and some of the things that you've created and looking at your Instagram account and all I can think about, and I, this is a confession. I had a personal trainer at one point, this is a few years back. And she was like, what's your goal? I was like to be able to wear high heels. And she was like, I'm going to strengthen your core. I did not strengthen my core and I still cannot wear these beautiful shoes that are on your site. And maybe someday I could lay around and just make them look pretty. But <laughs> but with so that being said, so, <laughs> well, and I liked one of the pictures that you had in there. Um, you were testing out a pair of the boots. So people complain that men design this fashion and it's unwearable bras and all these things. And I'm like, well, he was wearing the boots in this one to check them out. So do you feel comfortable in those types of shoes? I don't wear uh, heels quite often. It was right. like a fun me trying out a pair of shoes on set and the photographer happened to get a great yeah. image. But, you know, I really do put an emphasis into the brand and manufacturing with comfort because mm. a lot of my background is bespoke footwear for a lot of, you know, pop store performance yeah. type girls, women, etc., so making sure when we did do this commerce line, I really wanted to merge functionality, comfort, along with luxury. So all of our soles actually have orthopedics in them. Yay! You're getting a level of comfort along with luxury. And I just feel like, you know, within this luxury market, there isn't really a whole emphasis on any sense of comfort. It's just the the bitchier you look, the... Yeah or the shoe and it's like well you can still achieve that but yeah. why can't it so be somewhat comfortable i think there's a negative connotation put on comfort and mm -hmm. we really need to change that dialogue and i think that also translates into diabetes as well absolutely co comfort yeah i just literally pricked my finger for the first time in years just to make sure that my my cgm was working and you just look at levels of comfort there that's how things have changed right. in that realm as well how just out of curiosity is somebody who is a friendly stalker of famous people at times, especially those in the diabetes space, how did you build a relationship with people like Lady Gaga? And I mean, that's that's a huge feat right there. <laughs> well, it's funny you use the word stalker because I actually I, social media is such a good catalyst for mm. dialogue and conversation. The way the Gaga circumstance kind of came to be about back in the day when she was working with Brandon Maxwell, had just stopped working with Nicola Formichetti. Brandon had tagged his junior styling assistants. Mm. And I was like, huh. I was like, I feel like I need to try to get their attention. Mm -hmm. so I literally just kept blowing their phones up with like liking all of their photos, mm -hmm. like not like literally probably every single photo. And within that afternoon, my publicist at the time got an email about an hour later saying that they would like to pull my current collection for Lady Gaga's five-day closeout at the Roseland Ballroom. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it paid off. I really think that you got to trust your gut instinct mm -hmm. and go in with that. But after that kind of happened, then the relationship really kind of kicked off and then I ended up working on the art pop world tour and so then we've made, you know a few other projects after that but <laughs> well and okay let's talk about in situations like that being on tour or going to fashion week I mean let's yeah. be honest diabetes throws a wrench in things so and having an insulin pump I'm sure makes life a lot easier but let's talk about when you're on the road packing all things I mean there's so much that goes into it 
Yeah, I feel like all diabetics need to give themselves more room to say it's okay to be stressed out and a little bit anxious because, I mean, for me personally, it's like we're all resourceful. We know we can get what we need, but it is nice knowing that you have that like end of the world backpack that has like everything, batteries, you know, extra hemolog, test strips, syringes, you name it. Yeah. But specifically, like, being in high-profile events and having a limited bag to, like, what you're allowed to bring into spaces. Yeah. You know, last example I can think of, I attended Vogue magazine's Vogue World. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was their first big real fashion show that the magazine had specifically put on for Fashion Mm -hmm. Week. And I'm sitting front row my first time ever at a show And I had a tiny little bag because that's all that was really, I think, allowed. And I had my phone. I had my glucometer as a backup and like, I think, a piece of candy or two. But like candy doesn't work quickly enough sometimes when rest zones. And my blood sugar is just plummeting. And I kid you not, it's like it was so surreal because I tried to enjoy it to the like highest capacity. But it's like. We have, like, supermodels coming down the runway. It was Gigi Hadid, Bella Hadid, doing this full walk. The actual track Vogue is playing. Next thing I know, Lil Nas starts performing, coming down from the left side of the runway. And I'm just like, okay, like, (laughs) I love Starting to sweat. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm, like, so grateful to be here. But, like, they're videotaping this. It's live recording. Luckily, you know... I have the the activity mode on tandem. Insulin pop was able to throw that in, let the adrenaline drop a little bit, kept the candy under my tongue and everything mm-hmm. kind of started to rectify. But it's tough, you know, like moments like that. It sounds so fluffy in the space that I was in, but I don't think people talking about, about this like adrenaline drop yeah. as soon as it's like that fight or flight mode. And I think if we could focus on more of the fact of, that stressful mind space that comes into those fluctuations. Yeah. It it might be a little bit more helpful, especially for uh, some of our diabetic youth. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you think about it too, when you have a low blood sugar like that, it takes a while to recover. So it's like, you want to be having the time of your life and slipping the champagne and all the things. And sometimes (laughs) life throws a little wrench. Hopefully they had mimosas or something. So you had some juice or something around, but yeah. My friend Nicole was sitting next to me and we went straight to the bar right afterwards. And I was like, Coca-Cola, please. <laughs> just like, something. Throw it in there. Well, and so do you, do you have a team that's around you all the time? We're a pretty small team. So I've got my publicist, which is a team of two. I've got my executive assistant. I've got a operations manager who kind of helps from point me to the factory and then I'm also very much in communication with the factory being an Italian American I love being able to like talk to you know yeah fellow Italians over there but yeah we're pretty it's a small company hoping to continue to obviously grow but for right now we're pretty small well and the reason I bring that up is because I was thinking about when you were talking about packing and having that emergency kit as a high profile person what do you tell the people that work with you and does anybody see your numbers? My executive assistant, God bless her. Absolutely love her. But she she sees the fluctuations. Yeah. Luckily, uh, I've been in really good control for the past few months. But she's been 
a little safety net, I will say. You okay. know, there's been moments where we've been in business settings and I'm just not well. And she's had to step in and say, you know, Tom will be with you in a minute. Yeah. You know, moments. Because as we know, with like low blood sugars, the brain fog and oh, yeah. running and the feeling overwhelmed. I mean, everybody's symptoms are so different, but yeah. those are specifically for me that really kind of kick in. So I'm, I feel very grateful to have the people working with me that I do. Okay. So you do still feel your lows. I know that as we get older, sometimes we lose that sensitivity. Yeah. It's, I weirdly feel that, I don't know. I, I feel like there's not enough psychology study or if there is, mm. I'm just not aware of it. But I feel like every six months, my symptoms as to like what my highs and my lows are kind of mm-hmm. change. But yeah, I, I feel very grateful that I still feel them. Yeah. I obviously would never want to be without my CGM, but it's nice to still be able to like tap into your. Body. Oh, yeah. Listen to your what's going on. And in public spaces, especially in high profile ones, do you let your gear show? I definitely let my CGM uh, show. I wear it as a, you know, badge of honor. I think it, it's interesting to see people yeah. be like, what is that? <laughs> I call it my microchip. I say it's how I keep my battery up. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I think walking into spaces where like there's metal detectors and stuff, that's always really kind of weird and interesting. Because oh, yeah. I know we're not supposed to like have it go through a metal detector, but right. interesting to see people's reaction with that. But I tried to, in terms of other people's being respectful of others, maybe like doing a finger stick out of eyesight for others because I know blood freaks yeah, them out, yeah. like whatnot. But in terms of all mechanics, it's usually just the CGM that's out. I um, went on a date recently. It was, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but when it comes to gear, and I, I was it. explaining to him about, um, I was like, well, you know, I have diabetes because I, he asked what I did for a living. And I mentioned, because we were at brunch, and I was like, okay. And I was, the dates prior to that, I got it from the table. He never saw a shot or anything. And I said, well, uh, like I said, I have diabetes, and I'm going to have to um, give a shot here. Is that going to bother you? Because I want to be respectful of, because I'm MDI therapy right now. He was like, you know what you got to do. And I was like, and I've got a device attached to the back of my arm. That's why I'm always looking at my phone. He was like, and so I'm thinking, like, how do you talk about those things with people that but don't know. Yeah. No, I love that you're bringing this up because honestly, like diabetes and dating, oh God, it's been, it's been one of my like real trials and tribulations. So, you know, I am an out and proud gay man, a part mm-hmm. of the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, the guys that I've dated, it's very much been like, are they supportive during the highs and the lows? Like, do they <laughs> wake with you when you're low? If they don't, like... They're out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I feel you. It, it's it's a it's a very vulnerable uh, thing because I personally don't like to have to ask for help. I'm a very self-sufficient mm-hmm. person, but not afraid to ask for help. But when I do, I just, it's nice to know that you're going to have a partner that's like very reciprocal to that. So I'm happy to hear that he was super <laughs> chill about it. <laughs> he hasn't seen the gear on my arm yet. I have been, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But he, yeah, having somebody that's supportive. And I think that's one of the things I was really drawn to uh, your story. And when you talk about the things that you've done and to encourage youth and things like that, and no disrespect to other fields or whatever, but we see the athletes maybe an actor, but I really was drawn because you're doing something that's different in the space. And I want to, again, tell all people living with diabetes, especially the young people, 
you can do anything that you want. Okay. Um, and you can rock. And gosh, we've got, what's her name? I can't think of it right now. But she was wearing her Omnipod on the runway. Lila Moss. Yeah. Yes. I'm like, yeah. yes, girl, please. Thank you for that. Because you just told so many young people that they can make that happen. Going into really quick, because one of the things that I read about you is you had, and please correct me, and I'm going to read a little bit about it, but an exhibition, Gender Bending Fashion. Yep. And I'm going to read just a little bit. It says, examines a rich history of fashion disrupting, blurring, and redefining conventions and expectations around the relationships between gender and dress. I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it says a lot about it. At the same time, the garments on view can speak more broadly to societal shifts across the past century, including changing gender roles, increasing visibility of LGBTQIA plus communities. (laughs) I'm literally reading this. I want to make sure I'm correct on that. And the rise of social media as a powerful tool for self-expression. Throughout the exhibition, individual narratives emerge touching on issues of gender identity and expression, sexuality, race, class, pop culture, activism, social justice, and more. Let's talk about that. I love, there was so much thought that went into this. There's no doubt. So let's talk about how it started. So, I mean, I can't take, I was just a participant and so grateful to be uh, a participating showcased artist. The mastermind and brilliant woman who is behind that show is Michelle Finnamore. She is a Salem resident. She works with several museums. She is so amazing, so lovely. She and I connected over a MFA pop-up with the hub space in Boston. And I did an installation there, and then we kind of just became like a little fashion family, kind of Mm. falling for one another. And slowly but surely, it became kind of right for my work to be a part of this larger conversation that was happening. And I think it happening at the MFA in Boston is so major in so many ways Mm -hmm. because... We have a great art community and like two of the most prestigious museums in the country in our Mm -hmm. state. But I think our state in general has so much room to grow in terms of the acknowledgement of queer spaces. Mm -hmm. And when I say queer, I'm encompassing everybody in the LGBTQIA, as well as just uh, expressionism. I think, you know, I don't want to knock it because it's such a huge part of Massachusetts, but mm-hmm. I think it's incredible how much we focus on collegiate and sports things, but there is such a an amazing, enriched art community, and yeah. we uh, should be paying more attention to it. And I think that show really spoke to that because it was one of the highest attended shows that the MFA has ever had. Oh, wow. And it, because I know, obviously, what MFA stands for, but please share with listeners who are not familiar what MFA stands for. Uh, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I love everything about that. And so I want to, because I want to be respectful of your time, kind of wrap up with, let's talk about some of your advocacy work within the diabetes space now, because you were so involved as a kid. And I love that. And I wonder if that also has to do with you maybe being an entrepreneur. So you just like, so gung-ho at an early age. Yeah, I mean, I have learned so much in terms of like organizational going after things because of my mom. I think, I, you know, she's a MacArthur Fellowship Award winner. So I had a really great example to learn. Um, But yeah, I think speaking things into existence has always been 
a goal and I think it that's what drives me plus resiliency I think that experience happening at the age of nine I didn't really realize at the time <laughs> what it was becoming yeah but the number one thing that I think uh, kind of keeps my spirit going is just resiliency and I want to go back to what you just said speaking things into existence that's so well said did you oh. just make that up because that is like poetry <laughs> Well, funnily enough, it's. I think it's one of the things, too, that used to drive my exes crazy is because I would have a habit of dreaming something up and then being so ball-bustingly, excuse yeah. my French, gun-ho for it, and then making it happen. Like, you know, two exes ago, I said, I'm going to work with Gaga and I'm going to work at a world tour. And he laughed in my face. And then look what happened. So, <laughs> you know, and we're we're still going after the dreams, still climbing, still trying to get to the end goal. So I love that. I have to say um, this past weekend, not a fair comparison. I met a woman who was the costume designer for Kiss. Okay. And amazing. some that. other bands. I'm like, oh my God, how the hell did you get into that? So I, I'm always fascinated with and she was just very driven and yeah. was in that space for like 35 years. So the story she must have. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I know. And I can't imagine being on tour with some, like that group. But anyway, so are you doing any public speaking? Do you do anything within the JDRF space to this day? Yeah. So I the industry that I'm in is so fast paced and wow. very stressful and very time consuming. I am always jumping at an opportunity when it comes my way to be a part of the diabetes community or yeah. something with JDRF. The last thing we kind of did, I want to say it was back in 2021, was a few different panels over Zoom. And that was really great. And obviously, I've been in communication with like the New England chapter. Mm -hmm. But I definitely would love to expand more into the advocacy work that I could be doing. I wouldn't say it's been on hiatus, but it just wasn't as prevalent as it was in 2021. Well, sure. But yeah, shoes is very, <laughs> it's a very intense, overly saturated market. So very competitive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. And I I want to know what's on the horizon for the shoe. I mean, are you putting out a new collection? What, what do we got? Yeah, so we are really actually just today, W Magazine again put out a, a little visual for their most chicest Mother's Day presents. They included our Ruffle Pump and Periwinkle. So, you know, we're continuing to push collection one and collection two because they're yeah. staples. They chose those colors for a reason, they'll never go out of style. And then I am simultaneously working on a very sculptural, more couture-based collection, if you will, that will debut in September. I think it's honestly going to be my most exciting collection I've ever done to date. Yay! Uh, I am very, like, really trying to push the boundaries with this one. So it's kind of going back to the sculptural way in which I kind of started Mm -hmm. So many years ago, I can't believe it's been 15 years at this point, <laughs> but I'm very, very passionate about this collection. I always am about every collection, but with this one in particular, I feel very, very inspired. Well, I cannot wait to see this. That's so exciting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm looking at, I don't know which collection it was. 
there was a pair that I was particularly drawn to. I think it's Waterhouse. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The black with the gold. Yeah. Devil's tail. So it's actually a fish hook. So okay. So it's a fish hook. So the reference point is John's Waterhouse, the mermaid. Oh, okay. That painting that he did. Yes. God, I don't have my dates. (laughs) But it's funny you bring those up, actually. I'm attending. So this will be my third showcase at a museum. But on May 11th is the party because those are going live on display at PBD Essex Museum. So no, that's so exciting. Now explain to people what PBD, whatever you just said. (laughs) PBD Essex Museum is another incredible museum that we have here in massachusetts there's like a list of all like the top prestigious museums in the country and i feel grateful that we have two of them but peabody essex museum so graciously included my work this will be the second piece that they have showcased of mine one before that was a pair of shoes that gaga wore but now it's uh they're very you know we're in massachusetts they're very inspired into like you know sailing and the fishing and the mermaid it's it's on brand (laughs) i love that and just out of curiosity with that do they purchase the piece or is it on loan they it depends on the contract okay yeah if you're in the arts world you know there's a lot of nitty-gritty that comes with doing these things which i appreciate that you have a team that helps you with that okay one maybe last question is have you seen there's been and i just came from south by southwest in austin texas from the world premiere of the Pay or Die film, and then another film that came out, oh, in the past year, probably in the past nine months, was The Human Trial. Have you seen either one of those? No, I have not. Well, The Human Trial is a lot easier to see at this time, but it is done by, I've, I've interviewed her, and I bring this up as somebody living with type 1, and we're always promised a cure, we're promised a cure every five years. Well, The Human Trial documents two different participants in the first uh, or one of the first, I'm like, I'm going to mess this up. Islet cell transplants. Oh, the islet cell transplant. Yeah. yeah. And they got to follow the patients. They did this over the course of almost 10 years. So, oh, wow. and, and they interviewed the research teams and some of the medical professionals that are involved in it. So it's just fascinating. And I bring that up because in that movie, the Lisa Hepner, the director, has type one. So she, it's just an interesting take on things. So as somebody who's lived with diabetes for how many years have you had it now? Oh, gosh, 33. Okay. So do you... No, no, I, no, excuse me. I... Funny that we can't remember. 31. (laughs) 31. Okay. Do you feel like a cure is on the horizon? Oh, gosh. I feel like I got to be careful with this answer because I feel like so many people get so mad about the conversation. What I, is, like, what does the cure look like for some people? You know what I mean? Is it? Yeah. I mean, I I feel like maybe there's a larger conversation because like, let's just get real for a second. Diabetes is one of the number one grossing diseases for oh, medical yeah. companies. And I think that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> I, I think that th- there is something there. Uh, I just think, you know, how soon are they going to allow oh, the public yeah. to participate? Okay, now here's a flip on that is like, since I've had diabetes for so long, if there is a cure and I received it, what would that my life look like? So you, I mean, you've known nothing else, honestly. So do you think you could flip the switch and be a person not living with diabetes? And if you could, 
what would you want to do? Well, I feel like I, I've done research and I don't feel like I know enough to speak on it at the moment. But because, you know, with the islet transplant, like, you know, they don't they have to take some kind of medication that is immune suppressing? So I, there's always kind of this push-pull, give-and-take kind of scenario. Yeah. And I think in a dream world is like, you know, if we were able to have this cure that everyone keeps talking about, it would be kind of like no contract, like you're cured. There's no yeah. me other medication that has yeah. other ramifications. Like it's just fresh and clean and done. And maybe that's being super, I don't know. Idealistic. Just, I mean, I, I mean, it's yeah. like what... Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean by that. And I could go geek out hardcore when it comes to some of the other advancements in tech, cell therapy and everything, that the number one goal is to not have give up shots and then have to take 75 pills to be able to to stay alive. And yeah, there's just so many exciting things on the horizon. I hope in my lifetime, I get to see some people that get to put hang their type 1 diabetes hat, I guess. Oh, I, I hear you. And I agree. I just think if people could like loosen the reins a little bit, I feel like maybe <laughs> we'd get there a little bit faster. Because I mean, there's been so many incredible breakthroughs. I mean, look at, you know, Dr. Doug Melton and everything mm -hmm. that he has done and such an incredible genius of a man. But yeah, I'm very hopeful. I'm optimistic. But again, I'm so far <laughs> removed from yeah. that part of the diabetic world, it's hard to like fully comment on it without sounding ignorant. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I have these conversations is, and then the reason I put out the content that I do is because the average person, even in the medical world, can't keep up with everything. And I get press releases every day and I'm excited to share and we'll start these conversations because at the end of the day, I would like to believe us as the patient mm -hmm. get to drive the conversation. And yeah, so there's no ignorant about it. There's so much and it's changing every second. It's like, how do you keep up? Yeah. I have a question for you. So yeah. as somebody who has had diabetes for a very good portion of their life, yeah. do you feel now as an adult receiving medical care, do you feel like you get infantilized? Use a different word because I would have to look that up. Treated, <laughs> treated like a child. Like, do you feel mm. spoken down to or told what to do and... Instead of like having like this aiding kind of conversation, like this like reciprocal. Energy. That's a great, great question. You should be a podcast host because that is, <laughs> um, and I'm, I, yeah, great question. I would say that more as an adult in the past 10 years, especially being in the diabetes space and reporting on it. Yep. I go in to most medical with kind of armor on and at the same mm -hmm. time trying not to sound like a know it all. Yep. But I lay all my cards on the table so mm -hmm. that my medical team knows what I know. Totally. Um, and with that being said, then I lean on them when necessary because they have been trained in certain areas. I've yep. never been on an insulin pump and that process is, I'll be announcing some things soon. And so at the same time, I have felt like in my own diabetes management, I made certain decisions a long time ago about dietary things, not because of the diabetes face, but how I just felt after eating certain foods. Yep. So I took those out of my lives. But now, and it's funny, and I think sometimes doctors are like, I cannot believe you're still alive and have no complications. And, you know, so there's just a lot to that, to that question. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's so interesting about what you say about the armor 
because I also I love my doctors and my mm-hmm. care teams. This is not necessarily like geared at them, but just as like the medical world as a whole with other circumstances, I do. I agree with you. It's like, you know, your body and yeah. like, yeah, they can have their infrastructure and their database and have their medical thoughts and opinions on things. But like, only we know how we're going to react in terms of like lag effect with exercise and yeah. like heart ratio and how it's really going to formulate for us. And yeah. It's interesting how much, I'm uh, bringing up the word anxiety again, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like a, all right, let me just rapid fire this out for you so that you yeah. can understand exactly where my head's at before you start just, yeah. You know, I had this doctor once when I was 14 and he had me on these, he wanted to like always be like hyper, hyper aggressive on the Mm -hmm. corrections. And like, I think there was one time that like he had in his charts written down that he wanted me to take like 12 units of insulin at 120 to make sure that I would stay at 85. And I think we can speak broadly this doctor is now also no longer working in the medical field for multiple patients that he treated like this. But I think any of us would have been on the floor needing a glucagon if you had taken 12 units at 120. So again, I'm not generalizing. That's a very isolated incident. But speaking to the point of like, you got to be your own advocate. And I feel like, especially as we get older, the less of like the humanistic care yeah, that we have with the child diabetic relationship to a doctor starts to get more aggressive. And I don't think we're talking about that in the diabetes space enough because it's just like it becomes the machine. Like people want to get you in for your appointment, you know, collect that copay and like get you out. Yeah, that is so well said. And one of the questions I normally ask every guest is, do you feel like you received proper education about diabetes management upon diagnosis, which doesn't really, you had a parent that was managing. And then have you continued to be educated from your medical team as to the advancements? Then I know you're a go-getter and so you're on top of things. So I, you're working with your medical community on keeping that together. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And also to put it bluntly, I'm obnoxious is what it is. <laughs> the jacket doesn't tell you. No, but I, yeah, I, I definitely am a go-getter. I I had the amazing Dr. Marianne Quinn at Children's Hospital here in Massachusetts, mm. and she saved me, I will say. Mm. Uh, you know, as a child, I was always like afraid to drop too low. So I was always running high. She really changed that narrative for me. But I also am very blessed at the, you know, the doctors that I have now, but they also are very much aware of the fact in between appointments, I'm not just going to like ride it out until my next appointment on so-and-so. I'm going to say, hey, I'm running too high because I think I'm more stressed or I'm not doing enough of this. Like, could you help me formulate a calculation? So I'll ask for help, but... I think that's one of the points that I always try to emphasize with my like advocacy with diabetes is that like no ask is too big because this disease is aggressive at times and Mm -hmm. it is uh, stressful and we can manage it and we can keep it in control. But don't let your voice be, you know, silenced Mm -hmm. by just worrying about like bothering medical people because that's their job that's what they're there for so 
<laughs> yeah, well said again. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining the show. And I look forward to seeing your new collection that comes out in September. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm